Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, it is my pleasure to uh, bring back Emmett Penny. Uh, keeping track of Emmett's bio is it's getting a bit tough, man. You're you're busy these days. <laughs> Host yeah. of Nuclear Barbarians and the Exhaust Podcasts. Uh, That's right. Editor of Gridbeat Brief. Um, I understand yeah. you're now on the editorial board of Compact. Um, That's right. Which published a couple of your pieces. The most recent one, Energy Lysenkoism. Um, frequent contributor to a number of prestigious publications, including what we're talking about today. Your most recent... I'm going to say, I'm going to try and pun off of the exhaust podcast. It's exhaustive, but not exhausting. Um, <laughs> Thank you. This, this American Affairs piece, um, Who Killed Nuclear Energy and How to Revive It, I think just absolutely essential reading, particularly for our brothers and sisters in the United States of America. But Emmett, am I leaving anything off of the bio? Um, I think that's good, man. I think we're good. All right. All right. Well, we'll definitely have some links in the show notes for where people can find you. And I hope you have like a website where you just kind of list your biography and have everything, you know, hyperlinked. I, I'm actually going to build one of those this year. Um, so okay. it dawned okay. on me that like, I'm actually getting published now. So I should probably do that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. We need a, re we need a repository, a deep knowledge repository from Emmett. Penny. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, any, anything else, you know, the self intro, blah, 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 whatever, but like how you've been doing recently, you, you moved. Um, what's, what's new and exciting for you? Yeah, I've returned to my homeland of the American Midwest. I'm in Chicago. Um, that's why it's boomy. Sorry, everybody. Uh, we still haven't unpacked. We got here on Saturday night. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Grid Brief is going great. Um, anybody who wants to keep up on energy news, that goes straight to your inbox five times a week. It's free. Click on the link. Yep. Uh, you also get Nuclear Barbarians attached to that in your Friday uh, newsletter. So you don't have to worry about looking for that if you subscribe to Grid Brief. But um, yeah, it's going great. Um, I wrote this piece for American Affairs. We're going to talk about that. I wrote the Energy's Lysenkoism piece. That did surprisingly well. I thought that was pretty niche. Uh, and I'm feeling pretty happy. It's pretty cool to see my name on an editorial board list with like Slavoj Žižek, Glenn Greenwald, and like people like Ashley Frowley, who I really admire, uh, fellow Canuck. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a uh, it sounds like it feels like uh, people are finally coming around to some of our ideas, and that is a good feeling indeed. Now, hopefully, uh, that doesn't mean that we'll just be some sort of pro nuclear arts and letters club, um, and then we'll get to see some reactors built out of it. But uh, I think we're gonna have to be a little bit more patient for that. Well, and first, we need you know a, a excellent history and context um, to understand the challenges ahead, how we got here. Um, and how to get out of this this mess, particularly in the U.S. You know, I've I've been on the podcast circuit, um, talking to Bryce, talking to Kugelmass, um, et cetera, and sort of maybe I've got two rose tinted glasses on, but I'm feeling pretty pretty optimistic. Well, I was on Barbarians too, for God's sakes, talking about how sweet yeah, things are right. up here in Canada. And I don't want to, it's not overly rosy, but God, I mean, particularly we're always comparing ourselves to the U.S. You know, be it healthcare, guns, et cetera, and mm -hmm. you know, it makes us feel pretty good about our our nuclear prospects, but. Um, yeah, let's, let's talk about, um, about the U S about, about this amazing piece that you've written. Um, you know, I, I talked to, I was talking about the nuclear secret sauce 
you know, how mm. this, this phenomenon in a number of countries where over a decade, maybe two decades, um, countries got really fucking good at building nuclear quickly. Um, you know, and obviously we have, you know, the Mesmer plan in France as a, as a key example. But I mean, on a, in Ontario here in Canada, we built 20 reactors in 20 years, decarbonized Ontario, um, laid the, the foundation for, you know, some prosperity here. Um, you know, but I, I mean, across I, the world, I, man, I, I mean... I UK, cited the South beginning Korea. of my piece as a I, uh, canonical example because appreciated of you. Yeah. the shout out, appreciated the shout out. But you know, like Japan, South Korea, China, every, every you know, it, it seems like it's almost like a baton being passed. And of course, you know, while the Russians will dispute this, the U.S. Um, is certainly kind of a birthplace of nuclear with the shipping port reactor. And you know, I, I have this kind of statist bias often of saying, you know, that these are the ingredients. And a lot of people push back and say, hey, no, like early experience in the U.S., we were kicking ass. Um, it was largely sort of privately run companies, private utilities that, that got things moving. So, I mean, can we start by, and I know you didn't go to the, into this in too much in the piece, but just kind of like, was there a nice little heyday in the sixties? I've heard things like JFK's election platform was, you know, if the private utilities don't start building more nuclear, we're gonna, you know, force them to, or we're gonna, I mean, everyone talks about Nix and other people saying we're going to build a thousand reactors, et cetera. I, I haven't investigated those claims too, too closely, but like. Can we start with like a little bit of optimism that the U.S. did do nuclear well for a little while and, and yeah, some of that totally. context? A lot of that had to do with the unique structure of the American utility system. So unlike in Canada or the U.K. for a while, um, it was private here. And a lot of that has to do with the commerce clauses and the Constitution at certain times as the industry was, you know, gaining ahead of steam in the late 19th century. Um and another part of it, I think, has to do with just like, frankly, American uh, culture and our preference, it seems to be, for private enterprise. But utilities are weird things in that, as you know, Meredith Angwin has uh, educated us all, you need a certain level of centralization for it to work at all. Um, and that took the form of a regulated monopoly in America. And so utilities didn't compete against each other, but what they could do is they could get manufacturers to compete to build bigger and better things. That's what made the American electricity system like way more ambitious than other state run versions of it. And it's because you could pit Westinghouse against you know, GE or whatever to build bigger and bigger turbines or whatever. So in the 50s, you're looking back at, you know, the 40s, the 30s, and all you're seeing if you're a utility executive is your own reflection, just not as pretty as you are now. You know, <laughs> like they had gotten it down to a sweet, sweet science, you know, and it was called the grow and build model, grow and build model. You know, they could get a bigger turbine and then just plow that into the rate base, but it would be so thermally efficient that it would really lower the cost of electricity. And then, you know, GE and whomever, and you can find old op-eds and reports from the U.S. trade publication Electrical World, 
where they talk about like, this is why you need every single customer in your area to have like a washer, a dryer, a toaster or whatever, (laughs) you know, to just keep ratcheting up that demand. Um, They've been doing that forever. I mean, that's how we got amusement parks, right? That was a load balancing strategy early on. So where nuclear figures in is that it hits them right in the 60s when there is no opportunity for them to think that anything could ever go wrong. And GE and, you know, the government is willing to, you know, help a little bit and subsidize a little bit. I mean, these are regulated monopolies, so they also already have like a quasi-state uh, relationship. So or, they can get cheap or, capital, right? Like that—that's one they of the can get modern cheap challenges. They also have a ton of capital, you know, at it. And the federal government's like, yeah, we really need to build nuclear. Like, we really need to do that. So we'll help you guys out. So you know, eventually. Um, after some people take some losses, I think like GE and one other country take a company take about a billion in losses to, to become loss leaders to make it an affordable technology to build. Uh, uh, everybody wants them. Okay, so just and just explain that for a second. They they as a company decided, hey, we're gonna like sell it a we're loss do this. to get established. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and wow. we're gonna get good at building it. You know, like we're really gonna like they, they took the capital risk to get out there. And I I mentioned that briefly in the piece and. It fit perfectly. Like people were like, okay, we can transition away from coal if this is going to be better. Because if you're an engineer, you're looking at the energy density and you're like, well, this is just superior. This is just the way to do it. You know, like if we want, you know, there there were some ideas that the U.S. was going to run out of uranium, which ended up not being true. Um, But, you know, people were like, it's abundant, it's dense, we can do it. So we should. Why wouldn't we? Right? Like that was part of the ambition of the utility system is that we can do bigger, we can do better, we can do more complex. The problem is that certain things started to fall apart in the utility consensus at the time. And what had been a very conservative strategy of, okay, we're going to build, you know, thing A, thermal unit A. And then we get really good at building it. And then we kind of realize, like, you know what? I bet we could build A+. plus. It's just a little bit bigger, has bigger boilers. You know, the boilermakers have figured out how to get some more efficiencies or whatever. So then we're going to do that. And we're going to slowly expand. But then demand started to take off to the point where they ran into diminishing returns when it came to building bigger and bigger turbines. So they would ask for these things from Alice Chalmers or GE or whoever, and they would have to do total first-of-a-kind type stuff. And it became just like a computer extrapolation. This is when computers also hit the uh, industry as well. So they're like, yeah, if you look at this model, we should be able to pull this off. And then they were like, and you know what? We got all of these new alloys from the Air Force out of the World War II experience. I bet you we could use them for turbine blades. They're called austenetic alloys. So they start deploying all of this new shit, but then it starts to run into problems. And there are suddenly costly reworkings and uh, other overruns. And they start to – they begin the process of – no longer building upon pre-established knowledge in a direct way, which creates an institutional human capital problem for them as well. Um, Especially because from about the mid-50s, 
and this might be true now, I don't know, to the mid-80s, you can find op-ed after op-ed by a utility executive who was like, we are no longer getting the best and the brightest. They're going to electronics and they're going to aerospace. Like they are not coming to the utility industry and they aren't really coming to the manufacturers anymore. Because like, do you want to be, if you're an ambitious young man, an ambitious engineer, do you want to help put the first man on the moon? Or do you want to make like a super sick thermal generator that like no one's going to pay attention to. Right. That's so you know, So this is sort of the, the tragedy of what happens to the utility system, which, by the way, creates, as far as I know, engineering departments in America. Whoa. Like, it, like that doesn't really exist as a formal thing, except it may be like West Point a little bit after the Civil War. And it's like, you know, military engineering. It's the utility industry that creates power engineering courses all over the country and from like from the 20s to like the 40s and 50s like the amount of power engineering degrees drops by like two thirds or something like that it is crazy it's just like gone from the national consciousness it's it's so reminiscent now of i think you know seeing seeing a lot of the brightest minds obviously going into like it and and into silicon valley but sure, also into, yeah. into fusion right because fusion's so much cooler advanced nuclear like <laughs> I mean, A, there's probably not that many jobs for people in the traditional nuclear industry, um, but you, you definitely get that sense. And I think, you know, Mark talks about this a lot in terms of some of the reasons behind the, the decay. Um, you know, I, I think he was comparing Rosatom and saying, like, they are still getting the best and brightest minds. It's really hard to work there. It's really prestigious. And that shows, right, in terms of their performance. Yeah. Um, so that that is that is fascinating. But let's just get a sense of numbers then, because, um, you know, we talk a lot about the Mesmer plan. I think 54 reactors delivered in 20 years. Um, I mean, what, what, what's the stat here? I mean, like, and we'll get into the, uh, the, the NRC, the Atomic Energy Commission turning into the NRC and the fact that no plant that was not approved by the, the Atomic Energy Commission has actually been brought online since, uh, yeah. since the establishment of the NRC. But, but there were a bunch of plants brought online, I guess, in the 60s and, and into the early 70s. So how, like, how many were built? Roughly, I mean, we get twenty percent of your juice from from nuclear, right? So that's a that's a lot of plants, I right? Mean, I think it's it's about the amount that uh, we have now. I mean, we've lost some plants in the meantime, so we're looking at like what a hundred something, you know, like uh, enough that again, like you said, it still accounts for twenty percent of our juice. I mean, this is an amazing build out at once. I should tell you that, like, you know, uh, I love Brett Kugelmass. I love his argument that if you just get rid of the regulations, and we'll get into that. Like you just let a thousand reactor types bloom. But when you start to run into some of the problems that I was talking about with new things being deployed in the 60s and 70s, it's also really hard to build engineering institutional knowledge when you're fixing a bunch of different types of reactor everywhere. Because then that means like you have to learn how to do it every single time you go and fix it. <laughs> after that you know and that created its own cost overruns so i just wanted to throw that in there so yeah i think that's about what we're looking at um i mean i'd have to go back to my notes i don't think i actually named the number in the article fair enough fair enough yeah so, something like an interesting quote here between 1974 and 1978 80 nuclear plants were canceled right and that's yeah. a year that's a year before three mile island i think it messes with people's narratives around like well three mile islands what what really put the pause on things and i think you've described the reasons why but that's that's stunning that's that's a stunning yeah, that six, reversal. That was just to give an overall picture. I think I also say that right after that that it was sixty percent 
or something of the new capacity about to be added to wow. the American election. Sounds like the renewable situation now, right? <laughs> right. No, exactly. Exactly. Right. So that was about 60% of it. The rest of it was coal. Uh, a bunch of coal plants got canceled as well. It was the the big the big boys, the big base load boys uh, that all got cut from the team um, as America entered the energy crisis. And look, one of the things we talk about all the time in America is uh, those of us who are sort of on team nuclear, we like to shit talk the electricity spot market, the RTO for good reason. I do it all the time. I've got another piece in compact coming out about this, you know. And we like to say that, hey, look at how reliable utilities were. Look, in the second half of the 60s, that just wasn't true. Right. Biggest blackout in the world, right? In the world. And <laughs> and uh, brownouts every summer for like three summers in a row leading up to the OPEC energy crisis. Like people have to understand that that is a huge loss of confidence. And why did, why did those blackouts and brownouts start happening? Huh? Uh, so part of it was just like, I mean, they just couldn't catch up to demand. It is the worst storm possible. So as the way that they would catch up to demand starts to fall apart under its own weight, they, like demand is outpacing their ability to do it. So they're just doubling down on their way of doing things and it's not paying off. That's why the Storm King pump storage facility was going to be built in New York. Because they were like, okay, if we can't keep building these big boy plants, we can at least build a pump storage facility in New York that will help us keep the New York grid online. And of course, that is one of the early moments, along with DDT, that creates the environmental movement. This is the founding struggle of the NRDC, I think, right? Is the is, is stopping that pump storage facility? Right. So Environmental Defense Fund is DDT, and then NRDC is Storm King. Wow. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about a few other factors here. Um, and I guess uh, this is probably a good time to start talking about the transition from the Atomic Energy Commission to the NRC and, you know, LNT and Alara as as a sort of regulatory um, pillows that are snuffing the child of nuclear. We're going to put it in these kind of terms, but... Goddamn, Chris. Yeah. I know. Dark, dark, but... Yeah, so... It's really one of the things that I talk about in the piece. Um, I wrote this piece to make everyone uncomfortable. Like I wanted pro-nuclear advocates to be uncomfortable by the end of it. I wanted environmentalists to be uncomfortable by it. I wanted like free marketeers to be uncomfortable by it. And then I also wanted pro-government people to be uncomfortable by the end of it. And I like to think that I pulled that off. Yeah, right? pissed, like you I pissed gave, off everybody. I'm yeah, sure. I gave enough of everyone's defects to understand like how big the downfall of nuclear actually was. I did that for some reasons. Maybe we can talk about it later. Right now, the thing that I want to touch on is that what LNT happens because of elite arrogance. Like when we look at the post-war world in America, there are a few things that we should do to contextualize it. One, we have to understand it as a post-war experience. Um, and by that, I mean through the GI Bill and just people coming home in general, you have all sorts of people who cut their teeth as young men, you know, and it's a man's world, you know, uh, flooding into every single industry. Like the Senate in America was like 70% World War II vets until the 70s or something like that, you know? And so then that's every industry, Right. Like, I mean, not that metric, but you get what I'm saying. In other words, it's very top down. I mean, just look at an American suburb. It's like a military base built around the barracks of the public school. Interesting. 
You know, like that, I grew up in one of those places. It feels just like that. It looks like the photos of my dad's time growing up on army bases with his father. Right. Right. It's like almost a one-to-one. It's eerie. So you just have a bunch of people who think that they should be able to say whatever the hell they want and other people just have to eat it. (laughs) And the utility industry also like really thinks that uh, they're responsible for technocratically improving everyone's lives and – you know, consumers really don't have shit to say to them because look how cheap electricity is. And so you should just fuck off and leave us alone. And it's the same thing in the military. It's the same thing. And nuclear is both civilian and military. There is no way it will never happen, I don't think, where you can successfully decouple military nuclear and civilian nuclear in America. Like, that's just not going to happen. That's what Adams for Peace was about. Look how successful it was. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like people still think of it that way. So that's just something that we have to live with and learn how to work around. So when the fucking Bravo incident happens in Bikini Atoll, uh, Louis Strauss, who's this like financier appointed by Eisenhower to the AEC, is a totally arrogant piece of shit. And he's like, yeah, it's basically no big deal. Like, sorry, it's just not expl- a problem. Explain, explain what that incident was just for. Yeah. So it's just like missile testing. Right. And, you know, <laughs> was that uh, Ivy Ike? Getting, like it was it was a nuclear explosion that was a little bigger than planned. And uh, the lucky dragon yeah, exactly, incident. Exactly. Like, exactly. Everybody was like, yeah, they were Oops. like, yeah. And he was just like, yeah, big deal. Go cry about it. Like, it's fine. You know, I should also mention that it's like at this time that the AEC is doing some really weird, weird stuff. Like I think it's called the desert buggy problem where they're trying to frack natural gas by exploding missiles underground in New Mexico and Colorado. So like you can kind of see how people are like, this seems weird to me. Little cowboy. Like this. Yeah. Like this seems kind of nuts. Like, um, and at the same time you had people in the AEC who kept telling the public like nuclear is never going to have accidents. It's like, it'll take a billion years for a plant to have a real problem. Like reactors are completely safe. So this Bravo incident happens. And then a bunch of geneticists rightly are like, dude, you can't tell me that that's not highly radioactive. But then the problem is, is once those geneticists win their way onto the AEC, they bring with them linear no threshold, which becomes because the guy, Herman Muller, who develops it, uh, another eugenicist, which is a major theme of my piece. It is creepy yeah. uh, how many eugenicists there are all over this stuff. Uh, suppresses any attempt to critique linear no threshold. Willingly, like wittingly does that. And his stuff becomes the standard despite its sort of like BS quality. Funnily enough, he fled the Lysenko purges in the Soviet Union. Um, So that's part of his background as well. Now, that becomes the standard. And it already creates some problems that aren't going to really hit until the 70s, especially around Three Mile Island, which is that on the one hand, the AEC NRC has told the American people there are basically never going to be accidents. On the other hand, they have adopted the second most sensitive way to measure radiation exposure that there ever could be. So of course, when something does happen and it's Three Mile Island, you did the great 
uh, piece with Jesse or Jesse did the piece. D couple studios put it out. Yeah. D couple studios put it out. Um, it's fantastic. People should go watch that. No one gets hurt. Right. But what do you say if you have just told people that is never going to happen and actually almost any dose of radiation could be lethal and just, just to be, run. yeah, just to jump in here for a second. Um, you know, obviously the lucky dragon crew was in the fallout zone and I think several members of, of that ship got acute radiation syndrome. I'm not sure if there are any immediate deaths. I think there was like 10 or 15 people on the boat. It, it like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cruise back into a Japanese port, you know, obviously huge symbolism there with the mm-hmm. Hiroshima Nagasaki bombings. It, it became a huge sensation, you know, I guess rightly so. I think there's definitely local health effects on, you know, islanders around the Bikini Atolls. Yeah. But but in terms of like the global public health impact of nuclear weapons testing, and I, here I'm going to start sounding like a Louis Strauss, like it's it's a nothing burger. Yes, you can find like strontium in children's baby teeth and their milk teeth, which sounds absolutely fucking terrifying. But again, we can like we can detect the decay of a single atomic nucleus like we as you're saying, like we have the tools to detect the absolute lowest doses of radiation as as you want to be and like look the the thing is like i mean and i I sound like i sound like a monster here because i'm like you know and i'm not saying that like i'm I'm, like it was great that they were able to get limits on atmospheric weapons testing but you know but this is the this is the problem with comms that we have all the way down right and this is what i mean about how you it's in america especially how do you divorce that civilian from that especially when the aec's job (laughs) It's a little bit of both. <laughs> and promote. Yeah. Like, you know, like that's part of the problem. Okay. So there's generally a problem of safetyism in America today. I think Alera, there's nothing fancy about what happens with Alera. Alera is actually created by the AEC. Once the AEC becomes the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the 70s, they turn it into its regulatory paradigm. And that is uh, just an elaboration on LNT. As low as reasonably achievable for those right. new, new who knows onboarding. what the hell that means. Yeah. Anybody who is familiar with like the U.S. Constitution and especially regulatory frameworks in America knows that there is no more load-bearing wor- word than reasonable. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> you know, who knows what that means? Now, if you have a very sensitive framework for figuring out what might be reasonable, then that's going to make certain things very difficult to clear the status of achievable. And therein lies the problem of Valera. And that creates, you know, all sorts of things in the latter half of the 70s, like redesigns and, you know, I have this statistic, it's crazy, in 1978, uh, of like 1.3 new regulations was added to nuclear per working day. It is impossible to make money in that climate. You're just not going to be able to do it building a plant. And that's sort of where we are with that in America. But look, like Louis Strauss might be technically right about some of that. But here's this, you know, I had a sponsor who once said, asked me one of the most important questions of my life. And it was, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? And he was highly arrogant uh, <laughs> and and like brutal to people. So like I, you know, that's his screw up. Like it is a game of comms, you know, because the public trusts you. 
This is one of the difficulties about things like nuclear. On the one hand, you have the claims of science, which is like facts are facts. They don't care about your feelings. On the other hand, you have people's right to vote people into office and to see themselves and their interests represented by those people and the bureaucrats that they appoint. We can see just in laying out those two different frameworks that we're going to have a huge fight over what is and isn't true, what is and isn't safe, and how things are going to work. And everybody wants to pretend, sorry, pro-nuclears, a lot of you are engineers, that it should just be technically science that is managed by people who know what to do and everyone else should have minimal input. That is really hard to reconcile with the American constitution as we know it. And I don't even know if the trade-offs for that would be worthwhile in the long run. I tend to think that they wouldn't, uh, especially given how the elites managed everything that we're talking about right now. Hubris you know? 1.0. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Hey, look, I'm not going to say that they didn't do anything. When you look at like what farm life was before electrification in the thirties, when you look at the liberation of women through appliances in America, all of these things, it is very easy to think, uh, to believe in technological determinism and to believe that that is the engine of progress that will liberate all mankind from suffering. Uh, and th look, th there's no reason to doubt that at that time. There really isn't. And anybody who was involved in doing those things should frankly be proud of that. You know, it's not just like, oh, these elite dummies, you know, didn't figure it out. Yeah, they made mistakes and some of them were grievous and some of them were still paying for today. But there were also incredible successes that we should be so grateful that they were implementing at that time, right? We were still drafting off of those successes. I mean, now it seems like a bill's coming due for neglect, but <laughs> um, kudos to them. So, I mean, get, getting back to this idea of reasonably achievable, you said that's such a moving target. I mean, I think Jack Devaney makes the argument that was kind of pegged at, you know, the price of like the high price of coal and then coal gets cheaper and nuclear is kind of stuck up there. But like there's no sort of like mathematical analysis of like where that's set at in terms of the cost of nuclear versus other energy forms. Like, is it double what coal? You know what I mean? I, I'm just... Is there any way to look at that in an empiric way and be like, okay, this is kind of where they've arrived at in terms of reasonability, or it's just a constant regulatory ratchet towards higher and higher costs? Because, because I mean, yeah. there are there are there are nuclear plants that are you know, despite you know, and I guess more in non-regulated markets that are that are cost competitive. I mean, they've paid off all of their initial <clears throat> capital expenses because they've been around for 30, 40 years, and if they're in the right regulatory environment, they're they're economic. But I guess they could be more economic. Um, yeah, I mean, any more thoughts on the reasonability thing? We don't need to. We don't need to go into it in more detail if there's not much. Yeah, more no. There. I, so first of all, it's like the reasonability thing to the extent that it's predicated on LNT is just going to ratchet, especially if you look at the NRC's like mandate, which is to just like regulate the shit out of nuclear. It's not to get plants approved. You know, and so that, that was the conflict of interest with the AEC was promote and regulate. And the NRC is just regulate. And it's been criticized, I think, for, you know, not looking at the risk benefits of like, OK, if we build coal instead of nuclear, here's here's the cost benefit analysis. Um, like, do you do, I guess you critique the AEC, the Atomic Energy Commission, for having that conflict of interest. But like, what do you what do you see? Is there a better paradigm for the NRC? 
Well, yeah, I think, you know, like, you know, you love bringing up the um, the airline industry. You ought to like the fact that you have to get the design like approved as a drawing. And by the way, I found out Little Bird told me that most people don't even turn in completed designs to the NRC. So like that's a whole problem. They're just kind of like trust us. But uh you know, the fact that you have to get the design approved and then build is crazy. Like you should be able to prototype. Like I that would solve so many issues. Right? Because then you wouldn't be doing the design by extrapolation thing where you build it and then all of a sudden it's done and you're just like, "Oh shit, look at all these things that uh Especially because we have all of these unnecessary safety redundancies. Now we have all of these complexities that are actually creating us problems in the real world that uh, we couldn't model for. And hey, that's nobody's fault who's like designing or modeling these things. They're policy takers, not policy makers. You know, they're doing the best they can with what they have. So yeah, like, I mean, look, it's crazy to me that the NRC is like harder on nuclear than the DOA, DOE and the EPA are on like coal, oil and natural gas, right? Like I've talked to plenty of people who are fracking out in Colorado and the Permian now and they're like, look, like, do I love regulators? No. Do I think that we need regulation? Yes. Do we have a relationship with them where we can keep them up to date on what we're doing in the field so that their regulations make sense so that we can make money? Yeah. And I was like, why can't we get that for nuclear? Okay, Emmett, so you said this piece has a little bit of everything, or a piece to piss off everybody. Who have we pissed yeah. off so far? We've pissed off like the the kind of nuclear engineers and the regulatory type people, people working in the industry. Who else are we pissed off? Who do we have left? Uh, um, they're, government people. They're, we also have the, the private industry people, though a lot of them will tell you that uh, regulated monopolies are not private interests. But, you know, hey, uh, compare that to socialism or fascism at the time in its context, and I'm sorry, but it is. Uh, <laughs> Um, is this a and, good time to get into the like the, the piss off some environmentalists? Talk about yeah, the, the dirty origins. So okay. The the major hot take in my piece is that okay, so we've gone into all of the like material reasons for why nuclear has a downfall in the seventies and why it never really recovers, right? So it's been about a half century, believe it or not. Right. Yeah. When you say that, you're like, oh, this is a huge problem, right? It's sort of like nuclear is a fighter right now in America that's like past his prime and he keeps taking L's. And the problem is, is that that becomes a habit for old fighters that don't know when to retire. Now I'm not saying nuclear should retire. I'm saying that there's sort of this like habit of like taking L's and it's painful to watch. And it's really hard to pull yourself out of that when you've been in the game in a while, it's just path dependency. Okay. The cultural reasons, the ones that people love to talk to who talk about three mile Island and the China syndrome, all of that, the major hot take that I roll out is that the post-war environmental movement was an outgrowth of the pre-war eugenicist movement. Now, when you look at the founders of like the Sierra Club, yeah, that's just true. You can't you can't argue against that. That's just true. Now, when people want to say, well, the hippies, like all they want to do is smoke weed, have sex, and like frolic in a prairie. It's like, yeah, they also wanted fewer people in that prairie. That's what it was about. The, the logic went, if population increased, so would the industrial intensity to accommodate that population. And that will ruin the earth and make it uninhabitable. So not only do we need to reduce industrial intensity, we need to also curb global population because otherwise there won't be enough to go around. Yeah. And immigration as well. 
And immigration, of, yeah. Of, you know, you're saying the non Well, it was Edward Abbey was a huge fan of that and was basically like uh, non-white people are inferior to me. And they don't care about nature in the same and way. They don't care about nature. And, well, that was one of the guys from the Sierra Club. They didn't have right. the Teutonic blood that um, gave them the the uh, deep, deep feeling for nature. Yeah, uh, yeah for, for nature. Yeah, right. Yeah. But, so I mean, you, we got some unsavory characters. I mean, the author of Hitler's Bible. Um, the what's that one called again? The passing of the great passing of the great race. Madison great, Grant. Passing of the great race. So he was yeah, one of yeah. the co-founders of the Sierra Club. Yep. Yeah, and one of those guys, uh, his son went on to write the the book uh, on, you know, population, enforcing the population, the population scare book that really influences Paul Ehrlich, who writes The Population Bomb. And, I mean, it's hard to discount that book's uh, effects. There's some stuff that I don't get into here. When you look at, like, the major global entities at the time that are sort of, like, figuring out what to do with the developing world um, in the Cold War context, which basically means, like, how does America exert some sort of control over them because we're in a global conflict with communism and we don't want them going there? There is all sorts of stuff about like curbing global population in these major international like NGOs and stuff. And that they're pulling from people like Paul Ehrlich, from Amory Levins, from all of these people who are lauded today as these forward-thinking, progressive, touchy-feely, we care about the earth type people. And that's probably all true. They probably love nature. They probably like hiking more than I do. I'm from the Midwest. You don't really hike. You just walk in a direction, you know? But uh, there was a deep anti-human quality to all of this. And I mean, I'm not the only one that's written about this, obviously. Like I worked on Apocalypse Never uh, with Michael Schellenberger. Like there's, I cite some of that stuff here. Uh, there's Robert Zubrin, Richard Rhodes does it. There's all sorts of academic books that are about sort of the population apocalypse there. The reason that I bring it up in this piece is that that is a neglected part of the story that helps us understand why they didn't like nuclear. They didn't like it for a few reasons. One of it is that it was really energy dense which meant that you could do more industrial stuff with it, which was a problem. But on, uh, on, on, on less land, and that, that was, I think, the reason why Ansel Adams and William Seary loved nuclear, because they said, hey, there's going to be more people. We're going to need more energy infrastructure. We hate hydro. Sure. Like, hydro was the enemy of the day. We don't want to flood these, these big, pristine California scenic valleys. Um, sure, so yeah. yeah. And look, I should say that not every single person in the environmental movement was like, I mean, an insane anti-human person, but I would say that the people who are most thought of now as environmental movements, like, look, love William Seary. Most people know who Ansel Anubis is, but only because in their art classroom, there were two photos of his of the desert. You know, no one fucking knows who William Seary is. You know, more people know who Amory Levins is or like know what the Sierra Club is than any of those guys. They know who Jane Fonda is before that. And she was a huge population reductionist. Okay, but let's talk about someone you know, who gets... So all, who gets all the a, people yeah. that we say like, oh, but he was good or like, you know, whatever. It's like, yeah, 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 that's all true. There are minor figures. That's basically like saying like, oh, but there are environmentalists that are pro-nuclear today. And it's like, yeah, they don't matter in the environmental movement. In the environmental movement, yeah. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah, they don't but, matter. But... <laughs> But one one sort of I think <clears throat> shocking hard truth for me was um, your 
description of um, <clears throat> Rachel Carson, right? Who I think is is because of this uncomfortable history with you know eugenesis and population control, people the kind of revisionist historians of the environmental movement say, no, 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 it's all about Rachel Carson. But you say there's a dark underbelly there. Let's let's yeah. dive in. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So first of all, uh, Rachel Carson's book, she has some very extreme claims that aren't true. And they aren't true given the science of the day. I'm not going to go through a litany of them. I think the main one that um, I found the most compelling was she was talking about biocide of birds. That's what DDT was doing. That, that's the idea of Silent Spring. There are going to be no birds. Yes. You know, I think she looks at like the Rob, she looks at robins and she's just like, you know, their egg layers are getting thinner. Like there are fewer of them. If you look at the Audubon Society's own robin egg counts, like over the period of time that she's looking at, the egg count is going up. Right. Like she talks about a whole bunch of other stuff in that book. I think there are some serious philosophical problems with it. Like it's not clear. Like she has some ideas about things that are like in harmony with nature and things that aren't. And she's like, you know, there should just be wildflowers by the highway. It's like, well, yeah, but like those are there because of the unsettled soil <laughs> the highway created. So like what, you know, what are we talking about here? You know, it's the, the typical like uh, romanticism gets in the way, but it's a very potently written, very compelling book. Um that uh, people adopt and they are really freaked out that DDT is eradicating populations and really hurting people. Now, if you misuse DDT, that can absolutely be true. And I, I've, seen like, some, I've, I've seen some great footage of, you know, just huge trucks with enormous sprayers driving through like American suburbs, I think suburbs, probably yeah. like and Florida and just, and just blasting this shit, right? Like almost out of like a fire hose just, um, and yeah, I mean the, the, the current uses where it is permitted is, is indoor residual spring, which is basically spraying, spraying the indoor walls of living areas so that when a mosquito lands on it, it dies basically. Um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's, yeah, you know, it's all about, you know, I think within all things toxicology, it's, you know, the dose, it's the the dose, the dose makes the poison, but anyway, car yeah. carry on, carry on. Yeah. So people like pointed to that because they're like, you know, see, like, look, it was about saving these birds. Like, first of all, that was based on bunk science. I'm not going to say that there are no impacts on birds, right? So we can look into the barrels of waste of DDT that were dumped off the coast of California, and those are having a negative impact. That's not what we're talking about here. That, to me, seems like irresponsible waste management. So if people want to go after those corporations for that, like, you should. Now, we're talking about spraying, and we're talking about the fact that DDT was a pesticide that, as you said, killed mosquitoes, right? So it alleviated malaria. Now, to people like Aldous Huxley or whatever, that is a big no-no because if you do that, if you alleviate malaria, then the population will increase. So you should just let everyone who's going to die from malaria die, especially in the third world. Now, let's complicate this story a little bit. By the 50s, People were already starting to realize that you can't just spray and pray. That is not enough to really reduce malaria. So DDT was already kind of falling out of favor a little bit, you know, and it was clear that you had to do things like development, right? Like dredging rivers, you know, drain, like, drain the wetlands. Drain, yeah. yeah. Draining the wetlands, like all of these things that everybody's done to alleviate that type of stuff. And the environmentalists were opposed to that as well. And, and like now, eliminate, eliminate malaria from, from America and North America because yep. it used to be a scourge, right? 
it used to be a scourge. It was a big problem. It was a big problem. So that's why they built the slave masters plantation houses up on the big, you know, breezy hilltops. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yellow fever, malaria. Yeah, exactly. So you go, uh, so the EDF environmental defense fund forms after Rachel Carson's book, uh, they go to the, they want some hearings on DDT. Um, it seems like there's a little bit sliminess. I didn't like, believe me, the amount of times I would wake up in a cold sweat about this piece and like go do extra research, I can't even tell you. It seems like there's a little bit sliminess on both sides. Prone after there were some industry science guys who people like Naomi Oreskes will tell you were not on the up and up. But then there were some anti-people, some scientists who came out and were like, yeah, I lied and I don't regret it because I was saving the world, you know. <laughs> um, and after tons of evidence, tons of exhibits, hours of hearings, the judge that's looking at it says – DDT is not harmful in the usage we're talking about here. It's just not. William D. Ruckelshaus, who is the head of the EPA at the time and a donor to the Draper Fund, which is a eugenicist NGO run by denazification opponent, uh, former uh, General William Draper, uh, from whose work Paul Ehrlich took the name of his book, The Population Bomb, doesn't go to the hearings, doesn't read any of the testimony, doesn't do any of that, and it's like, fuck you, DDT's banned. And that's how that happened. They cite that as their major victory. That's what that victory actually looked like. Because once America was like, we're going to do this huge ban of DDT, that created problems in the global market from it. You can find New York Times articles from the early 2000s where people are looking back and they're like, you know what? Africa really needs some DDT right now. And it needs it for exactly the use use that you're talking about, Chris, you know? So am I going to say that like any and all DDT use is correct and good? No. Am I going to say that there seems to be some really dark shit attached to this alleged victory that spawns one half of the environmental movement, Storm King being the other? Yes. Uh, and I should mention that uh, Paul Ehrlich writes Population Bomb at the request of William Brower of the Sierra Club to capitalize on this DDT movement that has been started by Rachel Carson's book uh, to give it a larger ideological element. And to them, that really means driving home the population reduction message. And it's really a bid to the American left. Like in 1968, Paul Ehrlich writes an insane op-ed or feature for Ramparts magazine that is the view from the future that is like incredibly apocalyptic. And some of it has to do with the idea that the oceans are just dead from DDT use, which is based off a Scientific American article uh, written by an environmental scientist who used water that already like had like chlorine or something into in it that would kill life anyway. And it tainted his results and like no one checked that. So it's based on shoddy science, like the whole way down. I mean, a few things you've said here. I mean, ultimately, I mean, there's there's a few ironies, right? I mean, that that the modern environmental movement formed obviously over these population concerns, also over bird concerns, and there were big concerns, I think, with bald eagles, golden eagles, pelicans. Sure, you know, the yeah. precise victims of of wind turbines now. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. Also founded over a sort of. Save Chris, the whales. that's a right-wing talking point. I don't know what you mean. I know. Okay, the save the whales mantra and then, you know, wanting to build North America's, you know, offshore wind turbines 
um, in the migration and calving grounds of the endangered right whale, of which there's, I think, 450 surviving members of that species. But also there's this quote I remember from the Indian Point hearings where the African-American Environmental Association said, you know, how many how many African-American kids need to get asthma um, in order to spare you know, a number of fish larvae like that are going into the intakes of of this nuclear plant, right? And there's this, you know, I think Alex Epstein talks about this a lot in terms of like the anti-human impact framework. And, and you know, are we are we looking at this through a humanist lens, an environmentalist lens? Where's the balance? Um, but I think quite clearly we got the, or the environmental movement got got things wrong in terms of a trade-off over, you know, human life and, and malaria. And I mean, it is interesting because th- I'm not sure if those arguments have been made for things like, you know, child vaccination campaigns. I'm sure on some fringes those those have been made. Um, but yeah, I mean, vaccines have, have contributed massively to children surviving in the harsh and unfriendly world of, of uh, you know, the underdeveloped or unenergized world. It's uh, it's interesting that impulse and it's a cultural impulse that's that's alive. Like there's little parts of me that that like ha- I can identify with that, you know, in terms sure. of my upbringing and in terms of, you know that kind of yeah anyway there's there's that impulse it's it's a strong no, I mean, cultural meme no it really is i mean especially in america like the secret national anthem is don't step on my blue suede shoes so like anything that has to do with consolidated power a lot of people start to get really really bugged out about even if it's like ultimately beneficial or has better trade offs or whatever you know i would like to say that towards the end of the piece i do point out that there are a lot of people who are within the environmental movement that have tried to distance themselves from the racist past of that. And I think that's great. Good for them. It's awesome to publicly reckon that stuff. Planned Parenthood had to do with Margaret Sanger, who was frankly fucking crazy, Um, you know, and it's good that they had to do that reckoning. Now, yeah, just for context, she's an anti-population, anti-immigration. Like that was her motivation for. for oh, she said. Parenthood. She said. When JFK, well, first of all, she was willing to work with like the Ku Klux Klan and stuff like that on some of her like get abortion passed stuff. But when uh, because you needed to really dampen down certain populations that you might not like. And, you know, when JFK was running for election, she was like, because he's Catholic and, you know, pro-life or whatever, and they didn't use those terms at the time, she's like, I will leave the country. And I was like, ah, yeah, what a dire conspiracy of popery to be conserved with the lives of American blacks. Like, come on, Margaret. Um, That was her whole shit. She was a eugenicist, true and true, of the late Victorian, early 20th century, racist cloth, right? Okay, so... People in the environmental movement has, have also been distancing themselves from that. Like I said, I think that's good. What I think is interesting is that they're willing to say, like, we're pro-immigration now, so you don't have to worry about us. And I'm like, it's it, that's fascinating to me because the thing that you won't touch is this all-renewables dream that is forwarded as the more harmonious with nature version against nuclear energy, specifically to reduce the industrial intensity of society so that society uh, does not have more people. The all renewables dream was created by the same people that were coming out of the post-war eugenicist scene, and they saw these things as a piece. And these environmental policies that make, say, California just unaffordable for you know, low-income immigrants, people of yeah, color, Yeah, there's that cetera, great right? piece written by, I forget her name. Jeremy uh, Hernandez? Just yes, yes. Yeah. Fantastic piece. Green Jim Crow. Everybody should read it. You know, I just fled California. 
because of stuff like this. For these you reasons know, as well, right? Yeah, for these reasons. Um, they're very happy to be in Commonwealth Edison territory, where because our homie is saved Byron and Dresden, yes. I will be one of the few Americans that is paying less on their utility bill this year. Thanks, guys. Well done, thanks, Maddie. Byron and Dresden. Yeah, yeah. yeah, thanks, nuclear. So, look, that was my major critique, is that there is this whole ideological path dependency that has nothing to do with environmental science, that has nothing to do with engineering prowess, that is an ideological, basically like aristocratic resentment of there being too many people around and modernity moving just too damn fast. And that is the renewables dream. Now that has been papered over because the climate change has now superseded population catastrophe because also it turned out that the population growth scare was wrong, did not pan out. Everybody can go look yet. at all it the bets Julian Simon, yeah, yeah, all the bets Julian Simon made with Paul Ehrlich uh, about how smart fucking Paul Ehrlich is, the slob, um, and no one has any questions about the relationship between these two things. Now Ehrlich and Lovins still work at Stanford. Ralph Kavanaugh is <laughs> still trying to shut down Diablo Canyon uh, and is still being a rank piece of shit. You know, like, oh, by the way, just, just as a thing, Ralph Kavanaugh has been in favor of California electricity spot markets from like day one. Enron days. Eh? Yeah. Like f from day one, that guy was like, yeah, like we need those spot markets because we need to get all of those big baseload things off of here. Like, but all of my shit gets subsidies. Okay, so we, we've, we've like gone deep into the eugenicist and Malthusian origins of the environmental movement. But again, why relevant to nuclear in particular? You've, you've, you've hinted at it a little bit, but I think we need to... Yeah, and again, it has to do with these uh, fears around there being energy abundance, right? You know, Amory Lovins is a really one of the main architects for the idea of the all-renewable dream, which comes from his 1976... Um, I think it's in foreign policy or foreign affairs, uh, The Road Not Taken, which is based off a misreading of Robert Frost's poem. Um, and <laughs> uh, it's basically the hard path. And people can do a deep dive with your episode with Mark on Lovins, but just to sort of recap here. Uh, so it's the hard path, which is the brittle path that America is on, which is what led to the energy crisis of the 70s. It's these big baseload things. It's these, uh, you know, all of that extra capacity that had to be cut at the 70s, right? So you can see that when he invokes that, you're like, damn, Lovins is smart. That was a problem. And then he says, and then you have the soft path, which is decentralized wind and solar. At the time, by the way, this is crazy to say because wind and solar are very not there yet. So it is an extreme position to take that is made possible only by the fact that Former, former coal cons uh, consultant that he was, uh, he still thought that coal was a-okay. As long like as it was a small little furnace in everybody's house. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Return, re return with a V to developing world life. Um, and that's what uh, the vision was. And there, there are certain like political elements of this too, right? Like obvious centralization bad decentralization good there's sort of a libertarian string through there that sort of you can see how the market reform guys and the environmentalists end up getting together and creating the electricity spot markets but the idea is like i said that nuclear is bad because it has abundant energy 
because it is unnatural, quote unquote. You see a lot of that stuff in the literature. Um, and because it will increase society's industrial intensity, bring more people into the world because of that and lead to civilizational collapse. That, that's the argument. And people were like, well, there has to be more there. Let me tell you, there fucking isn't. Like, that's it. It goes that deep. It is like that puddle deep. I'm scared of there being too many brown people on this earth or too many poor people on this earth. Fears. That's what it is. Now, a lot of them will not say that out loud. Like Paul Ehrlich and his wife write a reflection 50 years later on the public uh, publication of The Population Bomb. And they're like, yeah, it's a shame that our publisher went with the population growth because of how racist Draper is. You know, like we're not racist like him. And then you go read The Population Growth and like one of the opening lines is one stinking hot night in Delhi. And it's like, yeah, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're trying to slime their way efforts. out of that. They're like Bill Clinton. They're like, I never had the appetites, you know, like, come on. We know exactly who you were. Okay. We have to piss off the new left now because there's this yes. kind of fusion of environmentalism with the new left. I think you, I've, I've tried to articulate this on many occasions, kind of like what the fuck happened to the left. Um, mm -hmm. You, you, again, what I really love about this arg uh, article is it's exhaustive without being exhausting. You cover a ton of territory, but it's like a, tight bit of writing some tight poetry um and so just give it give us that um that summation of kind of of what happens to the left you have this let me read the quote it's a fucking great quote ah, i'll get i'll get uh i'm gonna find it and i'm gonna get dylan to cut out the little wasted moment here you, you can probably recite it but the vietnam buttons things right um by the 1970s, thousands of earnest and idealistic Americans of all ages were swapping their end the killing in vietnam buttons for more modish buttons bearing the words people pollute. Um, so tell us a little bit about yeah. how we get there. Yeah. Yeah. So by the way, that was written by a left-wing journalist at the time who was disgusted about this change in direction. So a few things happen. First of all, you cannot discount the impact that the FBI and the CIA and the Cold War had on the American left. It just, it was, a lot of it was a Marxist or at least especially in the IWW, um, an anarchist labor movement that was interested in seizing the means of production. And so they were very interested in everyday working class people getting them together. They saw the factories as things that they would eventually control. So they wanted to organize the people within the factories. But after all, uh, after McCarthyism, after Hoover's boys, after the revelation of Stalin's brutalities, you know, the Korean war is something I didn't talk about. That's a huge turning point in, um, American culture. That's like another red scare in and of itself that really changes the intellectual character of the country. People don't talk about that enough. People don't talk about that war enough. Um, you know, what happens is the left stops being a labor movement. And what it becomes is a collection of pet causes uh, that are all helmed, for the most part, by college kids many of whom are from hyper-elite families. Some of them, like Bill Ayers, whose father helped build all the nuclear plants in Illinois. Yeah, and he was a member of the Weather Underground, blew up a lot of shit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, also, um, you know, his sister-in-law ran the daycare I went to where Shaza Boudin uh, of San Francisco fame was a counselor. I remember Shaza well. He was very nice to me as a kid. 
Um, so, but, I mean, there's this idea of like the labor aristocracy that the, that that workers are no longer the vanguard that will deliver, you know, this revolution. Yeah, they, right? they all have houses in the suburbs now. They're bought off. They're ideological poison, uh, poisoned, or they're lazy, you know, or they're patriotic. Even worse, they love America. How dare they? Um, and we can't organize them anymore. So we're going to look for ready-made revolutionaries that really worked well with some of the post-colonial stuff that was happening in the 70s. Um, and it also inspire, inspired things like environmentalism, which would eventually go on to become all of the green NGOs. Uh, and that, that was the handoff there. So these people had no desire to seize the means of production because, A, they were already distant from it. They came from wealthy fam families, a lot of them. Or, and B, they didn't want the factories to exist in the first place. So they didn't care about labor, you know. I mean, everybody should read Fred Stafford's piece on Indian Point and Jacobin when it comes out this summer, because I think he's going to touch on some of those fights between the green movement and labor. And I really hope it makes everyone uncomfortable because it should. You know, these people get a free pass now because everybody's like the world's going to end because climate change is happening. No one asks any questions, you know. And that's that. That means that the emergency strategy that they're using is working. It's a crisis. How dare you ask me anything? How dare you? You know, and there's those, there's that great photo of scuffles between uh, union members fighting with environmentalists right. at Indian Point as it's being built. That's right. That's right. And, and that so, tension exists. Like that was a huge part of the Byron and <coughs> excuse me, Byron and Dresden. Um, you know, the competing bills, the I can't the union bill versus the environmentalist bill, prevailing wage, yeah, labor pitted against Kusha, environmentalism. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's still yeah. very much a, a phenomenon. It's still, it's still in, there. in Ontario here. It's a phenomenon. We have an election right now and. Most of the skilled trades unions have backed Doug Ford, the populist conservative, who had like he he really decimated a very good labor act that we had. Um, but he's the most realist in terms of supply chains, in terms of support for the petrochemical and nuclear industries here. Person who's gonna like wants to build shit. All the other parties are like do nothing, don't you know, no new industrial development type parties. And yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to say right. the least so, to observe so this. Just just to put a cap on this to where we are now. So all of these big NGOs are born in these environmental struggles after the left goes from a labor movement to a social movement. Right? That's how we'll distinguish it. And those NGOs in America have a huge impact on the way energy policy gets framed, the way things get put into place. I mean, FERC right now is basically a rubber stamping committee for whatever the fuck the NRDC wants to happen to the American electricity system, you know, or whatever their sub NGOs, you know, all these places are like leveling college kids up through them that then become like major actors in the movement, right? Big revolving door stuff happening there. So all of that's happening. You know, if we're wondering how like ESG managed to cut out nuclear, like, look, it was never going to be part of the party. I'm sorry. You know, that's not what these people are about. Like, they don't care about the trade-offs. Like, historically, they don't. Like, now they have a different cause that is more scientifically legitimate by a mile, which is climate change, which is very real. But they don't care if other people get poor. They don't because they're saving the world. Why would they? They're saving the world. As soon as somebody tells you they're saving the world, that's when you should reach for your revolver. Because you are less important than the world. They will fuck you faster than you can blink and that's what's going on with them yeah okay okay 
there, the, again, there's a lot more to this piece. There's there's the whole Chernobyl AIDS thing. Um, like there's some pretty dirty yeah, shout shit out, here. Shout out to Rod Adams, by the way. Thank you for archiving that. I had had that burning a hole in my back pocket looking for a piece to put that in since I read it a year ago. Thank you, buddy. That was awesome. So very briefly, just just what was that? What are, I guess, what are some of the dirty tricks? Yeah, so here's the dirty tricks. So we all know that after Chernobyl happened, which was a tragedy, the environmental movement made hay off of it. You know, in the early 90s, there is a conference where Ralph Nader speaks. Uh, so does Emery Lovins, the head of the Greenpeace at the time, serves as the plenary chair. And it's basically like, here's what we're going to do to make sure no nuclear exists in the 90s. And a lot of it's like, do what we're already doing because they're like incredibly successful. Right, right. You know? But the new trick they roll out is like, we need to talk about this thing called Chernobyl AIDS, which is the idea that those in the surrounding area of Chernobyl were exposed to radiation to such a degree that it permanently crushed their immune system, just like AIDS does. Building off of like one of the most potent fears of the late 80s, early 90s. It's been, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I say, like at the time that this conference is happening, like deaths in AIDS were in the six figures. For Chernobyl, it's like, what, Chris, 52? Yeah, so far. Yeah. yeah, okay. So that's how morally serious they are. You know, like it's so slimy. You know, anybody who knows somebody that lived through or had friends that died during the AIDS crisis will, should be furious, as I was when I read this. Like just, I, it's so contemptible. But, you know, uh, there are pieces in the Wall Street Journal, or not the Wall Street Journal, in the Washington Post and the New York Times that are like, Chernobyl AIDS, it's a thing. How are we going to solve it? Yeah, and for listeners who want to dive into this a bit more, I have a great episode with Geraldine Thomas called The Children of Chernobyl, which looks a lot at the phenomenon of the, the charities that bring um, mostly children from Belarus to the West um, and have been a really, it's really like very interesting kind of charity phenomenon. The, the largest charity in Ireland, for instance, um, is involved in this kind of work. And we examine some of the, the science underlying these kind of claims. But that's, yeah, that's, it, that's and it was a big and it was a big piece of solidarity between the Soviet Union and Cuba, which also took a lot of these children that as well. That is true, isn't and it? continues to. That is right? very true. Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of that's sort of where we are. Like we are living in the paradigm created by the 70s. So let's, yeah, I mean, we don't have too much more time, but let's, let's uh, wrap this up with, I guess you're, you've kind of given us the context, a bit of a diagnosis. What's the treatment? What's the cure here, Emmett? <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically I think that we need to find a new radiation safety paradigm. I am. You call it re-regulate, not deregulate. I like. I mean, it's it's semantics, but I, I kind of like that framing because deregulation. Yeah, I mean, not, we need not... safety regs. Like they they need yeah. to happen. It, the the question is how good they are and how onerous they are. You know, and I'm sure a lot of pedants will be like, "Well, how would you decide?" And I'm like, "Well, we decided once before, and it sucked. So we should be able to decide better a second time." Yeah. You know, um, and I think we really need to restructure the way the NRC works. Now, I need to do way more research before I can tell you exactly what that means. I'm going to plead humility on that because that's a huge problem. Yeah, you've done you enough know? in so, this piece. Yeah. Uh, the other part is um, I think we should be 
I talk about like repowering coal areas with nuclear as a way to do it. I also think that we need to do something with the building and trades to get them up to snuff. Part of that might be building abroad. You know, well, and you talked in your in I think the piece that really first brought you to my attention. Um, we need a new nuclear deal, not a not a green new deal. Um, you, you you went into some of the sort of again the preconditions of I believe the earlier U.S. build out. I did an episode with uh, Francois Perchet about you know because it's we I think like a lot of nuclear advocates, myself included, in my early days were just like yeah we just need to do what France did, just roll out this technocratic policy. But it's like we're talking about like a post war, you know reindustrialized heavy industry capable country with some of the best you know engineering discipline in the world well and, we're not, and we're not there just, right now yeah and everybody was terrified of slipping back into a post-war depression so everyone was highly motivated to solve this problem because within their lifetimes they had seen two world wars and one global depression and everybody was worried they were going to slide back into that Especially in the U.S., after world like they did after World War One. Okay, hard to replicate. Hard to replicate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So build overseas, repeal moratoria, reform the NRC. Okay, all right. That's it. And, that's uh, it. That, for now. That's it. Look, if we got that, I'd be happy. I'd be like, great. You know, um, and if no one steps up, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it is it's just this this moment, right? As an as an as an advocate and activist, it's it does feel like one of the. I mean, it's the most promising moment of my <laughs> my nuclear advocacy career, which is only about four years long. But you know, there's a lot of a lot of things coming together with the energy crisis. Um, you know, this is not all of a sudden the citizens of the UK didn't go, "Holy shit, we love nuclear." It was like, "Holy shit, gas prices are through the roof. Energy security is a major issue. We need to build eight reactors, not one." You know, we need to build a reactor every year, not every decade. I mean, that that gives me some hope. Obviously, the U.S. is a radically different context because of the relative energy abundance of fracking and, you know, everything that you've just mentioned here. Um, and it is, it is, yeah, I think this piece, again, is an absolute must read for anyone in, in America, uh, but also, I think, abroad, you know, just to understand how differently patterned the challenges are around the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I wish I wish my American brethren well in this in this challenge. But, yeah, first, you need to understand the problem before moving forward. And I think you've made an invaluable contribution here um, to, to understanding that. And you, you said this is the piece that you wish had been available for you when you when you entered into. Yeah, this, I was you know. like, you know, when I first started getting into nuclear, it was just like, OK, the greens are to blame. And I was like, OK, like, yeah, I can see that I've written pieces on that. Like that's pretty, I can do that very easily. A lot of that's already in my wheelhouse, but that didn't really like make complete sense to me. I was like, there's all sorts of other shit. And the more research I did on sort of the post-war era, I was like, it seems like way weirder than anything that I've read on this. Like there isn't a synthetic account that gives me why we can't build nuclear. And through some of the research I did just for exhaust, because some of the stuff I quote in there, I read in a totally different context, like a couple of years ago, um, about why nothing feels possible anymore. And then through the specific reading I did on the nuclear industry and the utility industry, it became clear to me that there is a very complex tapestry of problems that all kind of blow up at the same time. And that feels, I hope, it is a more satisfying account, you know. I say some extreme things that I think are true about the post-war environmental movement in this, 
Um, I also say at the end of the piece that like, yeah, we can repeal moratoria, we can re-regulate, we can, you know, build abroad, but if we don't take on the greens in America, it's none of it's going to happen. Um, so I say some things there, but I really hope that the first entire half of the piece, which is about the mismanagement by the Atomic Energy Commission and the problems with the utility industry, do a lot to show how serious I am about this not just being some partisan problem of environmentalists kind of sucking on this issue as well as a couple others. You know, like the problem goes way deeper than that. Um, I think it's frankly more fascinating than the like maybe, you know, uh, like sexier, like dark thing that happens with the post-eugenicist movement, you know. Um, and this is what I wish that like you said, I, I said on Twitter and, and you quoted here just now that somebody could have handed me so that I could have just sat down for 30 minutes and not be like, I know everything, but like, I know how to talk about why this is an issue. If anybody were to ask me, I could recommend this to them as a place to start. And that's what I wanted to do. And I think, yeah, when I, when I read Jack Devaney's why nuclear has been a flop, that was a, like it, it led to a whole lot more nuance in understanding it. And I'm interested if you guys have corresponded, um, cause you're tackling similar material and you do have some different takes, or at least you're emphasizing certain things in ways that he wasn't, um, but interested in like a synthesis there or yeah, yeah briefly, I haven't, briefly your I thoughts. Him. He's uh, yeah. in the citations, yeah. you know, yeah, know. um, and, uh, I found some quotes that I otherwise wouldn't have found through his research, um, which was great. You know, um, and I like that book. Um, I it's, think it's, it's a it's an alive book. Like he, he just keeps modifying it. I'm not sure if it's been printed on paper. I think you you like printed it off because you need a, you need some paper in front of your old school that way. But I know he's like version five point zero. Oh yeah, he's at version five million. But I, most of it that's adjusting like the stuff about radio. But I want, I wonder if your piece will will maybe influence some some further. Yeah, revisions. maybe. Yeah. You know, like I love that book. Um, it was a watershed moment for me. It really brought some clarity. I think. Um, where Devaney and I might disagree is that I think that there is a historical record of the NRC being anti-nuclear and being more easily influenced by green NGOs. We're seeing that at Turkey Point in Florida right now, right? Or Helen Caldicott's uh, group successfully prevailed upon the NRC to rescind the renewal license for Turkey Point. Which they'd already given, 80-year Which they'd already license. given, yeah. yeah, right? So... You know, um, and then everybody's favorite, Josco, um, you know, who is a real bonehead over there for a while. So he and I might disagree there. I think I am less of a free market fundamentalist than he is. And that's fine because he and I are both talking about the same reality. So I can work with that. And I'm sure he feels the same way because that's how it is with nuclear. If we can agree on like the physics and the engineering, then you're kind of like, all right, politics second. <laughs> For sure, for you sure. I, th I think I think what what's new, for, really new for me from your piece is this analysis of the the I guess the engineering and and getting ahead of themselves and running behind on orders and that mm -hmm. that was that's that's totally new to me. So yeah, okay, Emmett, we should we've gone over, which is always a great sign of having a great guest. Um, but uh, we do try and keep things to uh, to under an hour. We violated that rule. I'm happy we have. Um, thank you for giving us here at decouple the, uh, the first shot, um, at this interview. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah I hope, course. I hope, I hope to see you around on a lot of other podcasts and, and catch different angles on this piece. It's, it's, uh, really an essential piece of reading. Everybody follow, uh, Emmett Penny at nuke barbarian at grid brief, and we'll, we'll, uh, put some stuff in the show notes, but anywhere else people can find you or if they want to DM no, you, reach out to you. It. Yeah. DM me, reach out. Um, 
I can't promise I'll get to everything. I just don't. I used to have the time. Usually you say, <laughs> I read everything. I respond when I can. That's the usual kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It doesn't um, always have to be true, but. Right. <laughs> uh, but it used to be I would read and respond to like everything. Yeah. Um, I can't I can't do that anymore. Uh, so, yeah, you know, and uh, if you like the writing, you can get more up to date. Energy takes five days a week for free. Gridbeef.com slash subscribe. Check it out. Um, and yeah, otherwise, I'm just really happy to be here. Uh, and I would say like the piece does a better job of arguing everything I just said aloud. So avail yourself. <laughs> you get one free article from American Affairs, use it on mine, baby. All right, Emmett, thanks for coming on, man. It's been a pleasure as always. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys. <laughs>